Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Counterspin, Tom Hartman, Ring of Fire, and NPR. So let's, without further ado, get to the atrocious Rush Limbaugh. There's an audio clip from his uh, talk show, and uh, we'll this come is, back and This talk is about earlier it. in the week. Yeah, here we go. Rush Station, which cannot compete with us or anybody else militarily. How else does it support itself? How else does it entrench itself? Uh, it does so by making the local population depend uh, on its uh, existence, making the civilian population depend on them. Until civilians, frankly, I'm not sure how many of them are actually just innocent little civilians running around versus active Hezbo types, particularly the men. But uh, until those civilians start paying a price for propping up these kinds of regimes, it's not going to end, folks. Now, yeah, I know you're sure. What do you mean civilians start paying a price? Um. I just ask you to consult history for the answer to that. Uh, it's not their fault, Rush. It's not their fault. Uh, no, not saying that it is. Uh, but as long as you're going to allow these people to hide behind baby carriages and women and children and mosques and so-called apartment buildings, and if you're going to uh, launch military strikes at military targets, which Hezbollah is not doing, 120 rockets into Israel yesterday. Nobody has a care in the world. Nobody has one word of condemnation for that we don't know what targets were hit we don't know how many people died the israelis are not parading their victims around on tv for propaganda purposes yes they are <laughs> you know, what, what tv is he watching yeah and and my by the way i can't i'm i i, 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 I look this has been a great week because we got sugar tits on monday right and today yeah, thank you and no, today with sense. this clip we got Hezbo types. Hezbo types. I love yeah. the Hezbo types. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got a bunch of Hezbos running around there. And until we kill all these civilians, you know, you just start killing them all. Yeah. John, how do you feel about Hezbo marriage? <laughs> <laughs> that's a new one. I don't know. That's a that's gonna be a new pay per view channel. Is it as destructive as Lesbo marriage? No, no, but but you know, but, that, but don't give me that's not that's why that happened with no, Rush. Of course, it's not an accident that Hezbo and Lesbo ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Now getting to the uh, substance of it, he says first of all. Oh, these Hezbo types have been lobbing the rockets into Israel, and there's no condemnation of that. What? Of course there is. I don't know. I haven't seen a single story on this where they didn't say, but Hezbollah started it, Hamas started it, and they're raining down rockets into the civilian population of Israel. Look, also, I don't know where he gets his news. Maybe he gets it from some insane. secret I mean, site. Look at all the coverage. I mean, you know, I mean, I watch it. A lot of people watch it, and and you know. We see the rockets. I mean, I've posted on my site. You know, my friend is in Haifa, and he was emailing me, and bombs are raining down on him. I mean, uh, you don't think I care about that? Of course I do, and so does everybody. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it's insane. It's just, again, the stupid talking points of attack the media. when So he can just lie and, and say whatever he wants. You know, look, John and Jack, you know, and Joe, we, we see the, 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 the fact of the matter is we, Israel, we, they, we t- they tell us just like, 
like Lebanon exactly how many civilians were killed. We see it. It gets covered all the time, as Cenk inferred. The, 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 the infrastructure for all the news organizations much greater in Israel than it is in Lebanon. So those stories are covered. Uh, he's getting his news. He's making it up. I mean, it is, in fact straw man arguments. It is the exact same arguments that, that say, oh, you guys get on the Abu Ghraib torture, but nobody says anything when they cut off Nick Berg's head. Look, <laughs> here's the deal. The Hezbollah is, is an or- it's a given that we're criticizing Hezbollah. And we don't expect to have any sway with Hezbollah. We don't expect, we're not, hey, Hezbollah, please, would you back off? A couple of talk show hosts in California are asking you to ease up on the rockets. Enough with the Katusha rockets. Israel is our partner. Israel is the democracy. Israel is the, the, the quote-unquote, civilized nation with Western values. So, of course, that's who we're talking to. It's preposterous, this notion that the Rush Limbaugh and these other guys trot out there like there is no criticism for Hezbollah or there was no criticism for Saddam Hussein's rape rooms. It is, it is out, it's made up. It is straight straw man argument. It, it is, and it's, it's, it's the same thing. You know, they want to attach. Anytime we criticize the president, we're traitors. Anytime right. we, you know, we look at the policies, we, you know, we're, we're terrorist sympathizers. So you just put it over that the left supports Hezbollah, and, and, it, and it's ridiculous. And But you know what? they got millions of, of viewers, uh, and it gets just recycled, and then they, you know, and then they have the Malkins on, and then they say the same things over and over again. And it's a straw man argument. I mean, and now look at, you know what's really sad? Have you seen the demonstrations in Iraq today? Um, yeah. Which, which, you know, it, it's like where they're... These Iraqis are supporting Hezbollah, and it's, it's just complete insanity. Yeah, well, that's uh, another thing that, of course, Bush didn't consider. We're talking to John Amato of CrooksAndLiars.com. I want to get to the, uh, to the real core of what he said that was loathsome. So, apparently, killing civilians is not so bad, according to Rush Limbaugh. Now, of course, if there are Israeli civilians, as he you heard later, he's got more than, than enough outrage for that. But Lebanese civilians, I mean, they're Hezbollah types. Do they really count? He said, I don't even know how many of them are really civilians. Some of those three, four-year-olds, five, seven-year-olds, Ah, those Hezbo types, ah, civilians. So that's it. I mean, all gloves are off. Now conservatives are out and out in public saying killing civilians is okay. And he says there, I didn't say it was their fault. But then later he says it's okay to kill them. So it's not their fault, but we should kill them anyway. If somebody can say this on air and have no repercussions, no consequences, but yet when Dan Rather gets a memo right, but the source not completely confirmed, he has to be fired from CBS. There's too much that I keep to myself And I turn my back on my faith It's like glass
violent conflicts that the U.S. press cares enough to cover, there is at some point a discussion about whether certain images of destruction, carnage, and human suffering are simply too much for American audiences. There's been some of that discussion about the war in Lebanon. In its July 31st edition, Newsweek magazine noted that, quote, pictures that are coming out of the war judged too gruesome to appear in the U.S. press are being broadcast all over the region, generating an anger that America's allies in the region can barely control, close quote. Other commentators saw the images as a problem, but not necessarily because of what they show. New York Times columnist Tom Friedman observed in his July 26th column, quote, you can't go into an office in the Arab world today without finding an Arab TV station featuring the daily carnage in Lebanon. It's now the Muzak of the Arab world, and it is toxic for us and our Arab friends, close quote. Washington Post reporter Howard Kurtz had problems with the relatively sanitized version of the war available to U.S. viewers, writing that technology that brings suffering up close, quote, carries not just an emotional punch, but the power to distort the overall picture, close quote. How so? Kurtz wrote that some viewers might see images of dead children and forget that it was Hezbollah that crossed the border and started all of this, or that they hide amongst civilians. Apparently, such context should change the way one feels about seeing dead children. It's worth noting a recent Gallup poll, which found about half of the American public thinks the Israeli bombing has gone too far. Imagine how they'd feel if they really saw the devastation and death it had caused. the day for our let's uh, let's say back to back juxtaposed quotes for the day and we're you know we're broadly talking about school vouchers but there's a lot of other news here out and the uh, first the first quote is from Osama bin Laden March of 1997 this is when he declared that the US because in 1991 we had put soldiers into Saudi Arabia, and uh, the men were drinking alcohol and watching pornography, and, the, and they were not Muslims, and the women were showing their elbows and driving cars, and all this was absolutely intolerable. They were defiling the Holy Land, and the corrupt royal family was selling oil to us and to the world for, for $16, $18 a barrel, and thus squandering the, the precious natural resources of the homeland uh, of his homeland, it's of, of Osama bin Laden. So his his two demands that the price of oil go up to maybe seventy dollars a barrel, and that American troops leave Saudi Arabia, which George Bush did just about a year ago this month, I think, about twelve months ago. George Bush, George W. Bush, pulled finally pulled all of the U.S. troops out of Saudi Arabia. So Osama bin Laden has gotten what he wanted. 
And he's still free. Anyhow, he, here's, here's Bin Laden's quote. His fatwa against America, March 1997. We declare jihad against the U.S. government because the U.S. government is unjust, criminal, and tyrannical. It has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal. And now here's where he gets into justifying the, the death of civilians. He says, as for what you asked regarding the American people, they are not exonerated from responsibility because they chose this government and voted for it despite their knowledge of its crimes in Palestine, Lebanon, Iraq, and in other places. End of quote. So here's Osama bin Laden saying, uh, death of civilians? Well, hey, it's because they're supporting a government that is doing things that I disagree with. Okay, that's our quote one for the day. Here's our quote two for the day. It's from Rush Limbaugh, and on his program yesterday, quote, until civilians, frankly, I'm not sure how many of them are actually just innocent little civilians running around versus active Hezbo types, particularly the men, but until those civilians start paying the price for propping up these kinds of regimes, it's not going to end, folks. What do you mean civilians start paying the price? I just ask you to consult history for the answer to that. End of quote from Rush Limbaugh. So there you have it. Rush Limbaugh and Osama bin Laden saying essentially exactly the same thing. The death of civilians because of the behavior of their government or of people who claim to represent them is a legitimate and appropriate thing. This is how it works. It feels a little worse. Then when we drove our hearse right through that screaming crowd While laughing up a storm until we were just bound Until it got so warm that none of us could sleep And all the styrofoam began to melt away We tried to find some worms to eat in the decay But none of them were whole Los Angeles. Boris, how are you? Good, guys. How are you? Good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Hey, you know, I was just listening right before the break. You know, I tuned in a little bit late today, but you started to talk about how you think that maybe we are making things worse with the Israel and Lebanon situation. And I, uh, I think I might disagree with that a little bit, but I wanted to hear what you had to say a little bit more. I tuned in late today. And well, I think I might have missed some of that. help me out, Boris. What do you mean in regard how we're making it worse by, by what? By not doing well, anything? By not sort of trying to, to rein Israel in? No, I don't. I actually don't think we're making it worse. I think we're doing exactly what we should be doing. I, but, my, but you said right before the break. Yeah, you I hear you, we, Boris. Boris, Boris, yeah. Boris. Uh, come on. Don't be ridiculous. Okay. L- let, me, let me just say this to get your reaction. How do you think it helps to uh, rip Lebanon apart f- and uh, encourage people to go against Israel and in favor of Hezbollah. How, how does that help Israel? You're right. It doesn't help Israel to tell people to go against, you know, to tell to people, for people to encourage Hezbollah. However, however, 
I do think that, you know, calling for things like ceasefires right now when nothing's even happened as far as progress that Israel is trying to make, I, don't, I think it's early. <laughs> but but the, Boris, what yeah, progress? What, what progress? Hold on, hold on. They're going to destroy on. Hezbollah, 1.4 million people? They're going to wipe them out? How are they? What progress? How's that progress? And what are they going to do? They're going to bomb Beirut more so that if any Lebanese hadn't already made up their mind to support Hezbollah instead of Israel, that they're going to go in that direction? Uh, what progress are you, uh, could they possibly I'm, make? I'm saying that in the south, you know, Lebanon is pretty out of control in the south part of the country. I think that there's a way, and Israel is still trying. But um, well, I guess let me ask you another question. What is Israel supposed to do? Okay, well, uh, look, that's a fair question, and I have Jenks Israeli Marshall Plan, <laughs> which I, you know, look, I'll putting all kidding aside, there is the two choices you don't uh, you have, Boris, aren't simply either we destroy Beirut and we try to crush Hezbollah and drive everybody to their side, or we do nothing. Those are not the two choices. There is a rational choice, which is to try to undermine Hezbollah through working with the rest of the Lebanese and to to maybe even, as I you know explained in another show, to put funds into Lebanon so that now people are are tied to your money, and then once they're tied to your money, they're going to have an incentive to stay with you instead of go with Hezbollah. How, how do we, well, how do we do that when Hezbollah is, is in control of two key ministries out there? You know, the Lebanese people, and I'm not saying all of them, mm-hmm. and, I, you know, and I don't like the fact that there's, you know, people in the north and Christians in Lebanon, and even, even uh, moderate Muslims that are, you know, feeling the brunt of this. But I don't understand. You know, it's, it's similar to Gaza. The people made a decision where they, you know, they made a coalition, and the Hezbollah has a major part in that coalition. I don't know if you have talked about this before, but this whole thing where the 1559, they got the Lebanese prime minister to say that Hezbollah isn't a militia. Mm-hmm. He said it. And therefore, they're like, well, we don't need to disarm because we're not a militia, and 1559 only says militias have to disarm. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it, Boris, Boris, listen, uh, it, we could try to wish Hezbollah away all we like, <laughs> and we could wish that the Lebanese government was stronger so they can get uh, Hezbollah under control. But both of those things aren't true, sure. and no matter how many resolutions you pass or what words we'd like to call but Hezbollah. Let me ask you what you expect Israel to do, though. Okay. Did they sit there while they're, if they have, you know, Hezbollah is constantly going into their country or attacking, I want to say, and finally they did go in, you know, kidnap two of their own soldiers. How are they supposed to react? Mm-hmm. Go well, to the table? Oh, you know, sorry, you know, you're right, you guys. Yeah, I'm sorry that you completely violated our border. All right, well, let me explain, Boris. Let me explain. Yes, First please. of all, thank you for the call. We appreciate it, and it's always good to have a, a, well, an still, honest and reasonable discussion. I want to ask him one question if he's still there, but that's all right. Sorry about that, Ben. Um, look, he, here's, here's the deal. The, the answer as to what Israel's supposed to do isn't wipe out, you know, all in half of Beirut, we're going to show you pictures in a little bit here, uh, and and kill so many more civilians and drive uh, all of Lebanon towards Hezbollah, uh, create sympathy for Hezbollah. I mean, congratulations. How do you do that? I mean, leave it to Bush and Israel to figure out a way to create sympathy for guys, the least sympathetic people on earth, right? Uh, no, what you could do is do... And I'm not saying you don't have to have any military response. First of all, your long-term strategy was terrible to begin with. should have had a much better long-term strategy, the Israeli Marshall Plan, as I explained on another show. But even in the short term, you can go and do limited strikes on Hezbollah areas without this foolhardy idea of trying to obliterate Hezbollah that is never going to work, and that's going to wind up being counterproductive. You show them that you mean business. 
by doing the limited airstrikes, but you don't drive people away from you by doing a lot more damage than you need to. And then, you know, as far as how do you get the soldiers back, look, there's no ands, ifs, or buts around it. There's no way around it. You know, you could pound your chest and try to get and kill more civilians in Lebanon, and it's not going to accomplish it either. In the end, you've got to do a prisoner swap. And yeah, I, or, the soldier, or you don't get them back. Right. And, you know, and they say, well, I'm never going to do a prison. For that's not true. You've done many prisoner swaps before. Why can't you do one now? Yeah. And second of all, they have your prisoners. You have their prisoners. Yeah, you could do a prisoner swap. Yeah. And the question I wanted to ask Boris is, look, the, 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 the Lebanese government is a democracy. They did make that choice. It's not the strongest democracy in the world. And, in fact, that's why it needs our help and arguably Israel's help, but mainly our help, uh, more than anything. They, you know, for all the blustering and talk that they did that if Israel crosses the border, which they, of course, have now done, it doesn't appear to be the beginning of a full-scale invasion and occupation, but they are fighting in Lebanon. There's no question about that. And the Lebanese uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, uh, Saniora, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but, uh, you know, he said, well, we'll join up with Hezbollah if they do that, and they didn't because they can't, really. And they're, they're just not strong enough. And, and in fact, the reason that they're not quite ready to do that is the same reason why they can't fight Hezbollah in the south. It'll tear the country apart. They're simply not strong enough to do that. So I understand. What do you want Israel to do? It's incredibly complicated. And, 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 and after six years of George Bush, and I don't, I, I, my hunch is Boris is no supporter of George Bush. But, um, you know, it doesn't even occur to us that, you know, this diplomacy, it's incredibly complicated and frustrating. And it moves more often than not, at a snail's pace. And Jenk is right. There would have to be some sort of military response. You try to kill a bunch of, you try to kill as many Hezbollah guys as you can with your, with your, with your airstrikes. Um, but killing 350 people who had no dog in that fight, just people like me and you, how is that the right response? That's the worst possible response. It is a horrible response. It is the kind of response that turns entire generations of people, that reiterates the thought about, that makes all the crazy people who talk about driving Israel into the sea, it gives them a voice with non-crazy people. Yeah, but hey, we should drive them into the sea for crying out loud. I just live here south of Beirut. I don't support Hezbollah. I'm doing nothing, and they bomb my apartment building, and all four of my kids are dead, and so is my wife. It's just not right. And and I think that American Jews, I have no idea whether Boris is one, Jews all over the world, need to stop blindly defending Israel's tactics. And I use the word tactics intentionally because I don't expect anybody to stop supporting Israel and their right to exist and their right to defend themselves. But, I mean, you know, if some guy steps up to your girlfriend in the bar and says, uh, you're hot, I'd like to take you home, and then she says no, and then they call her a whore, you can't kill the guy. You know? <laughs> and the options aren't either kill the guy or do nothing. Right, you do. You, you know what you could do? You could headbutt him in the chest. You could shove him. <laughs> okay. Or, you know... Or, or you, since you're Jewish in this, in this argument, you could sort of uh, 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 overwhelm him with clever wordplay. <laughs> you know, but don't. You, you could embarrass him. You know, there's a lot of different options, and uh, uh, an overwhelming force isn't the only option. That's right.
Having dedicated his July 16th program to the Middle East conflict, CBS Face the Nation host Bob Schieffer ended with an editorial in which he purported to explain things with reference to the old fable of the frog and the scorpion, who could only cross a river with each other's help. After making a deal to cross peacefully together, the scorpion stung the frog midway through the trip. As they were sinking, the frog asked, in his dying breath, Why would you do that? To which the scorpion replied, in Schieffer's retelling, Because this is the Middle East. Nothing new here, really. Schieffer is just presenting media's by now conventional wisdom, portraying the Palestinian raid that captured Israeli soldiers as inexplicably unprovoked. He even explains that the raid could not have been a response to Israel's occupation of Gaza because it happened after Israel had withdrawn from Gaza, which, quote, was what the Palestinians supposedly wanted, close quote. No mention of, among other things, the deadly attacks on Gaza or Israel's total control of Palestinian borders, airspace, and beaches that continued after the withdrawal. Such information is immaterial because Hamas and Hezbollah, in Schieffer's terms, chose to provoke this war because, well, quote, there is no real answer except this is the Middle East, close quote. Reporting the ongoing Middle East crisis thoughtfully in political and historical context is a challenge, certainly. Presumably, when a journalist ignores information in favor of patronizing bromides about animals, he's announcing that he won't be rising to it. It's easy to get too comfortable with the belief that because George Bush has only less than a thousand days left to sit in the White House as menacing chief that, well, maybe we'll be okay. We want to believe that surely a thousand days doesn't give the shrub enough time to threaten the safety and security of our families any more than he already has in the last six years. It's what we want to believe. But you can be certain that a thousand days with these Republican wingnuts in control is an eternity. In those thousand days, the risk is very high that the Sissy Hawk Republicans will engage us in the third major military conflict, along with Iraq and Afghanistan. Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld are just dying to pick a fight with Iran. But why? Well, Bush has passed up on at least three opportunities to strike a diplomacy deal with Iran. On at least one occasion, Iran has been crystal clear about their intention and desire to reach a diplomatic compromise with the U.S. Iran's been willing to allow the U.N. to rely on diplomacy to work through U.S. concerns about Iranian nuclear programs. But all along the way, Bolton, Condoleezza Rice, Don Rumsfeld, Cheney and Bush have been unwilling to push diplomacy as far as possible before making threats of war. The exact scenario that we saw play itself out in Iraq with Saddam Hussein is now being resurrected in Iran. 
no time for diplomacy, no time to use all compromise options. And as usual, with this administration, there are always political reasons rather than logical policy reasons to explain why they act the way they act. Well, Sarah Posner has written an article that appears in the June issue of the American Prospect. That article tells the story of why Bush and his war henchmen are so anxious to make Iran into another hopeless abyss like Iraq. It's because there's only one part of the rove Republican coalition that the Republicans can count on in November and in 2008. The only backbone left to keep the Republicans standing is the Looney Tune evangelical political fringe that always seems to originate in Texas, and then spread through all the other red states like something akin to the bird flu. Sarah's article is a must-read because she tells the story of why a war in Iran is such a huge probability. It's not because a war with Iran is really necessary. It's because the new Republican, lunatic, religious right is demanding a war. They're ordering their boy Bush to go to war. You see, the way they read the Bible tells them that Bush is supposed to invade Iran according to the Old Testament book of Esther. Televangelist Tom Hagee, in fact, is going on TBN television telling his followers that along with sending in their $20 love gift, they should also send a letter to their beloved president that demands that he start a war with Iran immediately. The real fringe Republican voter base has for decades been praying for a good old-fashioned nuclear war somewhere in the Mideast. In their minds, it's going to hurry along the prophecies of the apocalypse. That would make life and life hereafter just about perfect for this bunch of oddballs. So Hagee's now telling his Republican faithfuls that now's the time in Iran is the perfect place. Hagee is certain of all that because, according to him, he read the book of Esther, and the war in Iran is supposed to take place in 2006. But Hagee then adds some more spooky editorial license by telling us that when he reads the book of Esther, it's clear to him that when Bush invades Iran, Israel's going to help with a nuclear strike, and then the Russians are going to attack Israel, and then Israel and the U.S. are going to defeat the Russians. And then finally, the apocalypse will begin. I couldn't make that up. That's what Hagee himself has to say. Now, I got to tell you, I read the book of Esther again, and maybe I'm supposed to wear a pair of John Hagee's special love gift glasses to see all that lunatic talk between the lines, but I didn't see anything about Russians, Americans, Iranians, or nuclear missiles. But, you know, as I closed that book of Esther, it did make me smile because I could visualize an apocalypse. But what I saw was the apocalyptic end of the Republican Party because I understood that it's now mainly that John Hagee crazy fringe that is the biggest part of the Republican coalition. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info.
Chris is in uh, Chicago. He's on line three. Chris, welcome to the Young Turks. Yeah, I appreciate you guys taking my call. Well, I don't. I have a feeling it's going to take a turn for the worse at the end of, my, of what I have to say. But uh, all right, go ahead. All right, for one, I I'd like to know whose fault it is that Hezbollah has delusions of grandeur that are bigger than what their military capabilities can support. Uh, You're talking about disproportionate response. They're the ones that pick the fight with Israel. If they stop picking a fight with Israel, they'll probably live a lot longer. But they're not killing Hezbollah. They're killing Lebanese, regular Lebanese. Now, that's my second point. Mm -hmm. If only we could be so sure of that. Because you can't get to have it both ways in this world where you get to live side by side with somebody that you claim to not disagree with that's firing rockets on a daily basis into Israel over the land that, that was just returned to them Chris? and get to claim, sorry, uh, we don't agree with them. I'm sorry. At some <laughs> Chris? point, in time, no, we Chris, gotta... Chris, Chris, Go Chris, Chris, Chris. If you knew for a fact, would you change your opinion a little if you were certain that those people were not secretly aligned with Hezbollah as you maintain? Would that make any difference to you? No, not really. Not in this. In the simple case is that they have to take it upon. At what point in time, as a civilization or a civilized, quote unquote, civilized society, do we got to expect people to stand up and say, "Listen, Chris, we're not going to accept them Hezbollah people." Instead of cutting the head off reporters and stuff, why don't they start cutting the heads off somebody's Hezbollah and say, "Look, Israel." We're doing what we can here. But Chris, do you live in the? You don't live in the real world, yes, Chris. Do no, you don't. You don't world. know anything yes, about Lebanon. No, you don't. You don't know shit about Lebanon. I, I know Chris. plenty of. I, I no, know you as don't. much as you guys. No, nope. not more nope. than what you guys. No, know. Chris, that is fucking conceivable. I got to tell you. Yeah. I hold it. I hold everybody to the same standards, regardless of the friggin' political. They've been party. a country for an hour. We have They've touted been for fifty friggin' years, and they have an enemy that that doesn't recognize their right to exist. We acknowledge with somebody that wants you. Thanks, Chris. It's a terrible call. You don't know what you're talking about. The principle is understandable. The initial question is somewhat understandable to ask. But Lebanon can. Everyone acknowledges the Lebanese army is not capable of removing Hezbollah. They just can't do it. We, in fact, have played a significant role in propping up that government because, if you'll remember. We love democracy. We're all in favor of it. All right. Uh, you know, Chris says, first of all, they're all he's pretty sure they're all Hezbollah. Go to theyoungturks.com. See if those kids are all Hezbollah. Uh, because, but Chris is sure. But he if says, they were all Hezbollah, Hezbollah would have won more than 10 to 12 seats in the parliament. That's all they want. Okay. And, uh, no, it's okay. But I think Chris is generally right, though. If you've got a bad neighbor... Uh, why not take out the city block? Hey, because you chose to live next to him. You know, I, I thought John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, was from Chicago, wasn't he? So why not bomb the... But Hey, Chris, you were living next to the killer clown. We have to take out the city block. You shouldn't have lived next to that serial killer. It, it's your fault. Why didn't you take care of him, Chris? Chris? That's why we killed your children, Chris. We, because you had a serial killer next to you. That's why we killed your whole fucking family.
Thousands of foreigners have been evacuated from Lebanon over the past few days. Many Lebanese have also fled the country amid the ongoing Israeli air campaign. More than 100,000 people have reportedly already crossed into neighboring Syria. By official count, and that number continues to rise. Syria is isolated by the, by the West, accused of funding Hezbollah militants. Syria says it is doing everything it can to help the refugees. NPR's Deborah Amos reports from Damascus. These are the latest arrivals in Damascus, Lebanese children fleeing with their families. A young Syrian volunteer entertains them while anxious parents register for a place to stay inside. This is a school for the blind, run by a Syrian non-governmental agency. In the summer months, it's empty. Now the dormitories and classrooms have been turned into a refugee center, housing 500 people, about 90 families. The Syrian government has pledged aid to Lebanon, but it is Syria's new private organizations, as well as volunteers and private businesses, which have been doing the hard work of caring for these frightened families day to day. Maria Lababidi heads Bina, a new Syrian NGO that runs the school. She has taken charge of these Lebanese refugees. We have 24 hours medical assistance. We have hotline service where they can join their families. Though it's a bit difficult, but they are being able to get to get in touch with them. How long can you keep this up? How long can you accommodate all these people? To tell you the truth, it is quite difficult, but we are coping. Syrians have pitched in to help in a country not known to encourage volunteerism or activism. The war has changed the rules of the game. A chef from one of the top restaurants in Damascus came here to cook. His sons are his assistants. Sandra Saad and Jawan Laham, high school teenagers, are in a warehouse sorting donations from the city's business community. We feel sorry for the kids. They have no more places to stay. They have no money, no so, food. Have you ever volunteered for this kind of thing before? No, not really. <laughs> First no. time. They are 16-year-olds. By the look of them, fashionable jeans, sleek blonde hair, poised and perfect English, they are from the upper classes of Damascus. For them, neighboring Lebanon was a playground, a place to shop. Now, they are learning something new about the people next door. Actually, we learned that there are a lot of poor people out there, a lot. You didn't know that? No, we didn't know. You like never seen We them. thought, yeah, we thought... Yeah. You thought it was all Beirut. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We just thought of the shopping, the cinema, and that was it. Even these high school girls, no relations between Lebanon and Syria have not been good. Syria's army pulled out of Lebanon last year, forced out by the Lebanese and the international community after the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. Many Lebanese believe Syria was behind the murders, but all that is forgotten now as the refugees pour into Syria's open arms. Juan Laham believes the Syrian effort will make a difference later on. We're trying to show them that no matter how much they hate us, we're like, we still want to help. We're good people and we have big hearts. At the Syrian border, cars and buses are backed up for miles. Those on foot drag suitcases across the border. Sonia Karyan is from the village of Anjar with its traditional Armenian-Lebanese community about a 20-mile drive from the Syrian border. She made it out with her baby daughter, her husband and mother-in-law. The rest of her family is still in Beirut. It was awful, really awful. My mother, my, my sisters, 
Sonia Carrion has no idea when she can go home again or if her house will be there when she and her family return. They plan to stay in Syria with relatives. At the passport window, there are handwritten notices, Syrian families who have offered their homes to anyone who needs a place to stay. Telephone numbers posted offering kindness to neighbors until the crisis is over. Deborah Amos, NPR News, Damascus. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I've had um, a bit of an epiphany today, and I think this could be good news for me, good news for the show. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it won't have any difference. We'll, we'll see what happens. But just uh, before I tell you what the epiphany was, a little background on myself is that I love having epiphanies about myself. I do as much introspection as possible. Uh, I, I haven't been to, you know, like a psychologist or counselor since I was like six or seven. Um, and I hated it then, but ever since then I've been really kind of interested in discovering truths about myself. And, um, so I, so anyways, I do a lot of this type of introspection and I, I have these epiphanies where I say, you know, oh, that's why I do that. I've just learned something about myself and it's fantastic. It's like, it, and and I, I love that I do it on my own as opposed to like with a counselor telling me what my problems are. It's like the difference between, uh, you know, saving up all your pennies and going and buying a new bike as opposed to uh, having your parents pay for it or, or buying it on a credit card, something like that. You, you feel like you earned it because you think about yourself and you think about your experiences and you, you know, you question why do I do that and, and how, uh, how does that affect you know, how do my past experiences affect the way I think about the world now? And so there, I have a couple of examples, one of which you may identify with and one of which uh, you absolutely won't identify with the specific example, but you might know kind of the feeling. And they're both related. And the first is, uh, you know, back in high school, I was really um, like personally touched by Catcher in the Rye when I read Catcher in the Rye for school. Um, and, you know, I I had read it before that. I had read it before school and then reread it during school. And I think the second time I, I really got more of that feeling of that I, I felt very connected to Holden Caulfield. I had that, uh, you know, not his big theme, if you don't know, was he wanted to protect children, the innocence of children, from the, you know, the horrible realities of this world and adulthood and, and everything that comes with it. And, and the, the key word that he used a lot was uh, phonies, that people grow up and they become phonies. And so, and that really struck me as something that 
I feel kind of strongly about myself and the uh, possibly terrible and, uh, you know, really inappropriate example of that was this, um, this girl who I dated extremely briefly. I mean, we never should have dated in the first place. It was awful, but she, uh, called me one night. I was at work and, um, we decided to get together after I got done with work. She was just going to meet me in my house. We're going to watch a movie and hang out. And you may already know, but the dating code uh, means that, you know, watching a movie in dating code means not watching a movie at all, if you know what I mean. And, like, this was maybe the second day we had been dating. So, like, it wasn't anything serious. It really was just kind of hanging out. But, like, an excuse to what get together and kind of do whatever kind of came about. And so we, you know, I, I go home. She's there. Like, you know, she's met me at my house. So, you know, I go inside. I change out of my work clothes. And we're hanging out. And we put on a movie. So we're sitting on the couch. And we're going to watch a movie. And... You know, she's like she's got the mintiest breath I've ever smelled on anyone. So like she knows why she's there and I know why she's there. But we said that we were going to watch a movie. And I so much dislike the fact that we have to have like a special code for that uh, that we like we have to have those little lies where we say things that we don't mean and that one thing is supposed to mean another that I actually like kind of insisted that we watch the movie so like there was a period where we started not watching the movie and it kind of gave me the creeps. Like I, I felt phony because it was like, I, I didn't like that. We, that there was anything disingenuous about what was going on. And it's ridiculous because, you know, two people who both know what's supposed to be going on. And it just made me feel like, I mean, dirty is not the right word, but I think you know what I mean by that. So, I I, just, I hate that feeling of phoniness. And so, reading The Catcher in the Rye made me think, you know, that's me. That's how I feel. Um, but, I mean, I think that probably everybody feels like that. And they're like, oh, no, I, I want to protect the innocence of youth from the horrors of reality, too. But... It's, you know, I don't know if everyone really follows through with it. And so I was glad that I actually had that experience that really not until like months or years later did I really 
discover that truth about myself and really put those pieces together. And so let's bring this back around. I'm talking about this podcast. I've had an epiphany recently and my epiphany was, it, it has to do with the comments that I have at the end of the show. And there have been a couple of shows where I've actually tried to say something kind of profound and meaningful and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I totally admit it. Like, you know, when I know in my core what I'm talking about and I don't have to read notes or anything like that, then it can come out and it can be natural and it can be real. But it doesn't always work that way. And I got a little gun shy where I thought like, if I don't feel comfortable with what I'm saying, then better to not say anything. And the reason why I felt uncomfortable was that I don't, I have, because I don't want to be phony. I mean, it's cliche and I don't want to just keep saying the same thing over and over again, but that's how I felt. And I don't want to, I don't want to claim to know more than I know. I don't want to, uh, you know, claim absolute truth, you know, because I've, I've heard that around, you know, I, people like, uh, you know, like the, some personal people who I, I have, you know, a personal connection with. And then other people, uh, for instance, like Greg Pallast, Greg Pallast has never said anything that I disagree with or have found to be false, but the way he says it and, and the way he says, essentially, I have absolute truth and everyone else is trying to trick you. Like that's exactly what Pat Robertson says. You know, he says, I have absolute truth and all the liberals are trying to trick you. And I hate that rhetoric so much that I totally shy away from it. So instead of saying that I have truth, I say that I seek truth. And the way that translates as a host of a talk show, kind of, sort of, that when I talk, you know, you don't seek truth by talking, you seek truth by listening. And so that's why I listen to shows and then give you what I listen to and let you kind of go through it yourself. And I hesitate to really add to it myself because, you know, I'm, I feel, you know, often so young and naive that I've barely learned how to formulate my own ideas and I, I don't want to just repeat what I've heard because, surprise, surprise, I'd feel phony doing it. I, I would feel, you know, anybody can just take what they've heard and repeat it. And I didn't want to do that. Um, but the epiphany that I've had, that I just had today, was when listening to The Young Turks, which if you haven't guessed, they're my favorite show. They're the anchor of my show because I... I listen to them more than anyone else, so I get more clips from them. For all of you who don't like the Young Turks, I apologize. That's just how the math works out. So I was listening to them today, and Ben from the Young Turks was talking about how he said, I have an idea 
that I'm going to talk about, well, but it wasn't my idea. I really just read it somewhere. And I realized when he said that, that all the people I listen to on, on all of these talk shows, they get all of their ideas from other places too. They, I mean, uh, I, most of them I think actually don't listen to talk radio because they do talk radio, but they read the newspapers and they watch television. And so they, I mean, they get all of their ideas from somewhere. And I get my ideas from somewhere. And I use my critical thinking skills. And, you know, I can piece things together. And so, so I've been thinking about how, you know, I, I, I was relieved to find that it's legitimate to repeat ideas that you've heard when they're good ideas that you agree with with your own personal core and and so that was part of the epiphany I had the other part is that the way you talk about things is by relating current events to your own personal belief system and if you've ever listened to Tom Hartman for any extended period of time then you know exactly what I mean because he says the same thing every single day he's got like these talking points and he drills them home every day except he relates them and and you know morphs them to fit the news and so i've it, it, this has been a, a big discovery for me to realize that this is exactly what i can do to make myself more comfortable in speaking and you know, not feel like I need to, you know, write a speech or make all these notes and, 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 and not just repeat what other people have said kind of blindly at like talking points, uh, because it comes out unnaturally to do that. So, uh, I've told, I've run out of time, so I can't say anything today. But I kind of wanted to get that out, and uh, I mean, maybe that those insights will help you out too. Um, but so the kind of the the end of the point is that you might be hearing more from me in in the future. So we'll see how that works out. So it's time for me to get out of here. Go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Uh, still voting for the podcast awards, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Hi, this is Nancy of Wake Up AM, Wake Up America podcast. Kathy, Meg, and I are proud to be members of the Progressive Podcast Network. Check out all of the great podcasts over at newmediarevolution.org. The Progressive Podcast Network. Stick a fork in the mainstream media because they're done. Period. And if that leads to a fucking impeachment, then so fucking be it.